Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. As a reminder, our questions bot is active and listening for your questions. So you can send a question to questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. You can do that from any matrix uh, server of your choice, or you can join us in the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome, sir. Hey, Noah. How's your day going? You know, it's going great, Steve. I have... It's been a fantastic week. We've gone from from one work project to the next, but they've all been different enough that it's managed to keep me really engaged. And so we've got another expansion project coming up where we're doing a lot of security cameras and a lot of access control. And um, it's really allowed me to kind of dig in. So I, I've appreciated that. How are things going at Red Hat? Uh, things are moving along. Uh, we still have a big backlog of uh, people digging out from the uh, the pandemic budget stuff. So uh, I've been full speed ahead with, with catching up with client work. I have to believe that the pandemic, in in general, I, I know that in in every facet there, this is gonna this is gonna differ. But in general, I feel like the pandemic and a shift to more cloud infrastructure is probably on the whole good for Red Hat as a company. I mean, I I don't think that we've lost any of our trajectory other than we had to push it back a couple of quarters be- as people shifted their IT budget to trying to accommodate the work from home as opposed to pushing out new projects. But I, I haven't I haven't seen this isn't insider trading or anything like that, but I haven't seen any slowdown in my area. That's very cool. So we open with feedback as a reminder. Your participation is necessary for the show to continue. It's a conversation that Steve and I have off the air frequently. We're here to serve you, the community. So the more of the feedback that we get, the more calls that we get from you, the more we can focus on you and less on us. Chris calls from Canada. Hey, Chris, you're on Ask Noah. Welcome to the program. Hi, Noah. Hi, Steve. How's it going tonight? Excellent. Hey, Chris. So, okay, um, Noah, what I've got is uh, about two years ago, I built a uh, TrueNAS uh, storage server for to hold our backups, um, a 60-bay for you beast, and it is now completely and utterly full. So 450 terabytes of backup data has uh, hit us at 90%. Um, I'm wondering, I know I can get some sort of expansion cards and a drawer, but I've never attempted anything like this. Um, I'm looking for a recommendation on what I should buy and how it connects up to a TrueNAS uh, device, how it discovers it. I'm sorry, I believe you told me this, but what is your data set? What's the size of your data set? Uh, 450, uh, 450 terabytes right now. Okay. So you've got a couple of options. So I'll, st- I'll, I'll start with... 
I'll start with this. You, one of the things that you can do, an inexpensive route, and what a lot of places do when they're trying to grow massive data sets or manage massive data sets, and they need to be able to split that up over a number of hard drives, is they will set up a number of different TrueNAS machines, and then they'll connect them via iSCSI. iSCSI, if you're not familiar with it, allows you to connect block storage from one device to the other. So in turn, the quote-unquote master FreeNAS, the thing that's going to create all the shares and share everything out, is going to see those remote devices as actual hard drives as if they were plugged into the TrueNAS themselves. That's one route you can go, and it's nice because you can add a few terabytes at a time or a lot of terabytes at a time and then you add all those iSCSI devices and then uh, allow them to connect. The other thing, which we just walked through with a client, the iSCSI thing is nice because it makes all of your management from one central place. All the shares are there, and if you have one shared data pool, then it can be distributed over multiple boxes, and, and it, and it kind of obfuscates that. But we just walked through something like this with one of our clients, and what they did was they actually split their storage needs out over a number of different servers, which, of course, you could do. Just have a bunch of true NASs that have different shares for different purposes. The third thing that you might consider, have you looked at 45 drives at all? I don't know what that is, no. Okay, so 45 Drives is a company that builds massive storage servers, and uh, one of the things that's nice about 45 Drives is they do everything with commodity hardware. Uh, and so what that means is they're using the same kinds of motherboards and uh, physical hardware products that you would buy off a of Newegg. But the nice thing about uh, 45 Drives is they make they can build a storage server to accommodate an almost – well, let me put it this way. I've yet – to come across a client who says, hey, we need to store a bunch of data and 45 drives hasn't been able to build a server for them big enough. Um, so if you're at the point and you have the budget where you're saying, hey, I want to do this once and I want to do this right, I highly encourage you to uh, reach out to 45 drives and and have a chat with them. Now, one of the things, and I'm just going to call them out on this, we work, we send clients and refer clients to them all the time. And lately what we've been getting back is, well, they tried to push us into a their own storage system, which I I understand is open source, but I would just tell you, uh, and it does run on ZFS, so there's that. But if they do that, I would tell them, nope, I want to stick with TrueNAS. And the reason that I would stick with TrueNAS is because then it works with the existing storage server that you already have, as well as if you ever wanted to go something other than 45 drives, you can still use the same software. So I would still stick with TrueNAS, but they will actually build the server and pre-install TrueNAS and configure everything for you right from 45 drives. So if you have the budget to go that route, I would certainly consider it. Um, but then apart from that, I would... I would look at uh, I would look at something like iSCSI. Your other option, if you're actually looking at, hey, we just want to buy an outboard uh, module, um, there's a couple different ways you can do that. So you can um, you can attach uh, I can't think of the I can't think of the name a TwinX. You can use TwinX to connect to Copper and get a 10 gig link from like an outboard storage uh, device that plugs in. Now, to be fair, I've never done that on anything other than Dell Power Volts. Um, which is Dell's uh, file uh, server yeah, basically. I, I, I've got a, I've got a mass another hundred terabyte uh, multiple Dell array that's using those. Okay, so 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 that would be an option for you as well, Steve. Do you have any thoughts? 
so the clients that I have are are on bigger scale, and when they need to do something like this, they'll pop in like a PCI Express card for InfiniBand, and then use. So InfiniBand is high high throughput, high low latency networking, uh, which means that the cables are significantly short. So you basically stack these things on top of each other inside of a rack, and they basically do what you're talking about with iSCSI, except over InfiniBand. And uh, I have seen them expand that time and again because InfiniBand can do 40, 120 gigabit, or yeah, yeah, it can do up to 120 gigabit depending on which um, which models you get. Okay, that sounds great. Now so I've got a bunch of different options I can I can go down. Yeah, does that answer your question? Uh, well, it gives me at least uh, some to start chewing on because I didn't even know where to begin at this point. Thank but, you. Okay. Yeah, you bet. If you, uh, if you, as you're digging through your project, if you decide that you need a little bit more help, don't hesitate to give us a call back. And and if you do complete your project, well, write us back or give us a call and let us know how it goes because we'd love to hear. Our first email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, a big warm welcome to Noah, Steve, and all the listeners. As always, episode 252 was highly infotaining. Kudos. An anonymous listener shared an article on the privacy security aspects of Matrix. My take here is simple. Security at the expense of usability comes at the expense of security. If someone wants to host his or her own server and doesn't want to use Synapse, they could simply try Conduit, and it gives a link to Conduit.rs. Another route is to go server-free. Use technologies that don't require any kind of server and are peer-to-peer based technology. A couple of good options are MiroTalk and Cabal. And then he gives links to both of those uh, projects. In an ideal world, everyone would use good old-fashioned email. They'd run their own server, and they would use GNU PG. Nothing beats the setup, in my personal opinion. Setting up and running a mail server is easier than setting up and running Synapse and other fancier things out there. A few personal mail recommendations for interested folks. Mail in a Box, so you can learn more at mailinabox.email iRedMail, you can learn more at iredmail.org. Clutter, uh, cute, Cuttlefish, you can learn more at cuttlefish.io. And MailU.io. This one's for enterprise, and it's a great mail server, and that's james.apache.org. Listener Charlie mentioned about a distribution for the visually impaired person called Accessible Coconut. Steve was a bit hesitant on their choice of SourceForge as hosting as a hosting platform and wondered why they weren't on GitHub. The reason is GitHub has a very strict limit on individual binary sizes. Each individual binary file must be smaller than two gigabytes. In case of Accessible Coconut, the size of their latest ISO is around 3.3 gigabytes, and I personally wouldn't worry too much about the ISO, ISO hosted anywhere as a user can easily verify the integrity of an ISO via SHA-1-SUM or MD5-SUM. As always, thanks for the podcast and keep up the great work. So a couple of things there. I, I would tell you that, and we mentioned this last week as well, Matrix is skating towards the eventuality of peer-to-peer. That's their end goal. They got sidetracked because in order to get funding to get to their goal, they have to have a product today that they can support and sell. And so all of these organizations came to them and said, hey, we can't wait for you to get everything perfected. We just need what you have. That's where they're at today. Um, And the other thing I would add to that is a lot of those concerns, again, just shutting off federation if you are, if you're looking for, hey, I just want 
a server and I want to host it, setting up a matrix server without federation solves a lot of those issues. I would push back a little bit on the email server thing. I don't recommend people host their own email. Um, you certainly can do it, but I think that there are a number of challenges that hosting your own email uh, per, server presents, one of which is you're going to have to deal with the numerous blacklists uh, and delisting yourself from those blacklists when they happen. Additionally, when your email address gets leaked out to various different spam uh, places, they're going to send a ton of email in, and most mail providers have some sort of spam prevention and spam blocking. And either you're going to get all of that email directly and just have to delete a bunch of it, or you're going to have to manage your own spam assassin, something like that. Um, Steve, do you have any thoughts on hosting your own email? Is that something you'd ever consider? I did it for years. It wasn't until uh, the beginning of last year that I moved to ProtonMail, actually. So I'm I'm more with Baku here. Um I moved off just for other for other reasons. When it was just me, it was fine. And then my wife wanted to have her own domain, and, which was different than mine. And that that added some complexity in managing the domains, the different domains for the same email server, the way that I had it set up. And I was looking at having to tear it all down or at least reconfigure how, what, how I had conceived of my mailbox. And at the end of the day, I was just like, well, you know, ProtonMail is like $6 a year or whatever it is for per user. Did you find that it, did you find it was a burden to host your own email or did you find it to be no big deal? You know, I think our connection dropped there just a bit, Steve. Not sure if, uh, sorry, there we go. Okay, good. Sorry. So I didn't find it a burden. Um, I had mine hosted on DigitalOcean for, literally years. And so I had the same IP and it wasn't, I very, very rarely had anybody not receive an email um, or get caught in spam. So that you do have some upfront reading to make sure that you don't get in the spam and that you are doing your domain verifications properly, but I didn't find it too bad. What did you use for a software platform? I use Zimbra actually. Okay. Uh, are they still active or is that, uh, has that kind of gone the way of the dodo bird? Uh, as far as I know, they're still active. They were actively releasing updates as of the time that I stopped last January. Very cool. Zimbra, we'll have uh, a link for you in the show notes. But I, as a person, I used to host my own email. I have gone away from that for years now. So that's, um, but it's interesting that there are still people out there that are doing it and doing it problem-free. Atypical from our interactive matrix room has thoughts. Would your thoughts on self-hosting your own email change if you were to set your email server up behind something like MailRoute? Because MailRoute would take care of a lot of the spam issues and the blacklisting issues. Possibly. But then my question kind of becomes, isn't the idea of hosting your own mail to kind of take control of all that stuff to begin with? Well, the idea of hosting your own mail with behind something like MailRoute is you then control the server so you can have unlimited you know domains and aliases and mm. users and etc so you're not paying per user and you're not paying you know per domain and all the other and if mailroute goes away there's other providers out there similar to mailroute you just redirect that 
And so you still own your own DNS. You still own your own servers. You have the data on your servers. And yes, it passes through MailRoute, but you have that data and you're running those servers. So it's just another take yeah. on it, I guess. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our second email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hey, Noah, I've missed Linux Fest Northwest for the past two years. Do you know of any other in-person Linux Fest scheduled in the next 12 months? Also, what is your favorite ThinkPad model? Thanks much. Best. Jeremy. So we've got a couple of options. I took a look and it looks like the only Linux Fest that I could find that is still happening is Ohio. Now, Ohio has typically been in the fall. They've moved it to December 3rd and 4th. They are, uh, so they obviously have some uh, additional hoops that you've got to jump through. So they are requiring masks, which isn't a requirement of the fest, but it's a requirement of the venue and the city of origin where Ohio Linux Fest is located. Uh, but if you're looking for an in-person uh, event in the United States, I highly recommend you check out Ohio Linux Fest. Steve, I think you go most years, don't you? Yep. I go, I usually present every year. Um, COVID kind of broke that and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it this year. Um, but I definitely, I try to. Tries to make it, I think he's saying. Um, if you're, if you're across the pond, another event that you might want to check out is the Youth Hacking for Freedom. Now, this is an interesting event. Quote, are you up to hacking on a software project of your choice? Do you want to meet like-minded people of your age from around Europe? What about getting the chance to receive one of our cash awards to travel to Brussels to meet some of the other winners and the great people from the free software movement? Then join the Youth Hacking uh, for Freedom event. It's a competition. The only conditions are that you are 14 to 18 years old and that you live in Europe. You can start registering Sunday, 31st, October 2021. Then on Sunday, the 10th of October at 5, you can join their online event so you can learn more about the contest. And make sure that you've registered for the competition already and come to the Youth Hacking for Freedom opening event, and you'll see people organizing the competition to better understand the concept of software freedom. You can ask any questions that you have. So obviously, this is not an event open to anyone. It's primarily targeted at youth. But as I was looking for events that are available in person, uh, if you're across the pond, this is one that you want, might want to take advantage of. And then on top of that, it's just cool that there is a hacking event for youth people. Steve, I, I apologize. I didn't mean to cut you off. We had a little bit of a connection issue. But you attend Ohio most years, right? Yeah, I've been going uh, pretty steadily since, I think, 2005. Um, and I love those guys over there. They do a lot of hard work, and it's a free event. And so I think that... Uh, anybody who can go should go and just say hi to the gang. So that Beth and and uh, Warner and and all the guys over there just doing a bang up job keeping that thing going. Are you giving a talk? Uh, well, I I, I I sorry. Are you are you attending this year? And if so, are you giving a talk? Uh, I haven't actually finalized anything. I did get the thumbs up from Red Hat. If I can free up my schedule, um, I just haven't decided whether I'm going to submit a talk this year. Okay, very cool. Well, I, as a person who has attended a couple of your talks, I can I can attest that they are very much worth attending for. So please do keep us in the loop if you decide to attend Ohio Linux Fest. If you're interested, the website is olfconference.org, and they are taking registrations. So you can go to olfconference.org slash registration and get yourself signed up for Ohio 
Linux Fest. Uh, another event that I want to mention, this was actually sent in directly by uh, one of our listeners, the second annual Nugget event. This is the Netrio users get together and they're going to be talking about their product roadmap as well as some demo sessions as well as have a variety of IT enterprise agnostic sessions. So if you're not familiar with Nugget, it's an annual uh, Netrio user group get together for IT. So this includes things like DevOps, monitoring, observability, uh, and Netrio's full stack IT infrastructure management system uh, delivers a number of different application performance monitoring uh, tools, as well as digital experience monitoring. Uh, they have solutions that empower enterprise, uh, solutions that power IT ops, developers, IT leaders. And so it's this is more of a uh, uh, I guess a business conference uh, is particularly if you're using this infrastructure, but they're also going to have a number of talks that aren't related directly to their platform. So uh, registration is free and we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. They're going to have a couple of sessions like keys to building high performance IT organizations, crisis preparation, nerding out on data center hardware and changes to trends coming and building high performance teams. So make sure to check all of those out. All three conferences will have links for you in the show notes of podcast.snoashow.com. Uh, and I highly encourage you, if you're in the areas of these conferences, to check them out. Now, as far as my recommendations for ThinkPads, kind of a ThinkPad fanboy, so I'll put that out there. Probably one of the best laptops I've ever owned in my entire life is my 6th Gen X1 Carbon. I pulled it out of the box, and I almost fell over. I was so happy with how thin and lightweight it was installed Linux and it was a train wreck. Nothing worked right. And I thought this is terrible. Who would buy this thing if you wanted to use Linux on it? Can't believe I've screwed up this badly. I did a quick Google search and found out that the particular issue, well, one of the many issues I was having, uh, there was a, the, the user, one of the people responded and said, Hey, reboot, go into the BIOS and change the operating system for windows to Linux. Did that. Instantly solved every problem I had. Trackpad worked better. Uh, the Hibernate Suspend thing, which was my biggest problem, completely gone. And that thing has been bulletproof and solid since the day I bought it. I've had it now for three years, never reinstalled the operating system, never had a problem with it. It is a tank. So that's the sixth X1 Carbon. I then recommended to Leighton Broadcasting, where I work part-time doing some radio, that they buy ThinkPads. They bought a seventh-gen uh, X1 Carbon, and they've had absolutely no problems with it. It's been fantastic. Now my dad asked me for his his latest recommendation for a laptop, and he bought the latest generation X1 Carbon, and it's been fantastic. Again, stock install Linux, everything works super thin, super light, super fast, and the build quality is fantastic. So I highly recommend checking uh, checking those out. The at Ulta Speed we have switched. Um, over to the T480, T490 platform. And the reason was simple. I like the X1 and I kind of want the X1, but I need an external Ethernet port because we use wired Ethernet like nobody's business in our line of work. So we just have to have that. And we also like a swappable battery. Uh, and so the T480s have been fantastic for us. Now, uh, I, I understand that the T490 has soldered in RAM, uh, which could be a problem. However... I will say this. I kind of gave up that battle when I got to the point where I said, 
I'm just going to always order the laptop with the most amount of RAM that the motherboard supports anyway. And so there is nothing to upgrade. Uh, and I'll just kind of leave it there. The, my, I guess my line in the sand for, Hey, I would want to do something different would be if they started soldering in the storage drive, which I think Steve, you've said a couple of times that would be a deal killer for you as well. Yeah. Got to be able to change out the storage. There's all kinds of reasons for that, either increasing or, um, just getting a speed boost because oftentimes they don't put the the best drives in or I'm too cheap to buy the best drive from the manufacturer at the time. Sure. Yeah. Why put that in when you can uh, go purchase it yourself and get a, a slightly better price? Our third email comes in from James. James writes in and says, point of clarification, currently considering buying uh, bulk ferret smart bulbs, light switches and power outlets from Costco just to flash with the Tasmodo firmware. Uh, so, Steve, tell me a little bit. Is this a good idea? Should James purchase in bulk and flash with Tasmodo? So I, I've considered the same thing. I actually did the same thing or a similar thing with uh, a different brand. And what you'll run into is that there's been a, a switch in the late 2020s where they've started to change the chip that is no longer compatible with other types of flashing. And so in my experience, I bulk ordered something and I ended up with half a dozen or so devices that I either bricked or couldn't use because it couldn't take the firmware. And then in which case you can't really send them back. So uh, I'm more in favor of seeking out places that have what you're looking for. So I'll give a plug to cloudfree.shop. I know the guy that's over there. So just a disclosure Um, I don't get any kickback or anything like that. I just think he's doing a good job. Uh, He offers some products that um, either is is one of the protocols we talked about, ZigBee or or Z-Wave, but he also offers pre-flashed things with Tasmoda. And then there's also, if you're on the other side of the world in in the APAC, which is, you know, Australia and and the Asian Pacific area, there's a store on AliExpress called um, Atham. A-T-H-O-M, and they have all kinds of devices that are pre-flashed with Tasmoda. So if, if I'm going that way, both of those places offer kind of discounts on bulk bigger orders. So that would be the way that I would go. Fantastic. Again, you can join the conversation by giving us a call at 855-450-NOAH. It's one 450 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. James joins us from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I know, I need to jar your memory, because this was from about a year ago, I never sent a sound device. Uh, don't, don't worry about sending it. I just needed to know not manufacturer model number and where to get to them, because I'm still having sound issues, and you never said the same thing. I did get the T-shirts, although I don't know who ordered extra small on a large. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what... Well, the large from is super small. I was like, okay, I was going to just frame that one. Yeah, they unfortunately, we're moving to a different uh, t-shirt vendor because we've had a number of different problems with uh, with Teespring and their, not just their sizing, but also with the, uh, they have started using like vinegar or something to to, to seal the the uh, screen printing and it just doesn't work real well. Anyway, uh, in answering to your question about a sound device, it is the Sabrent uh, USB audio driver i think that or audio uh, card and it's just a tiny little uh eight dollar 
uh, USB dongle that allows both input and output of of audio. So it is Sabrent, S-E-B-R-E-N-T. And uh, I'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Yeah, um, quick key question. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to frame the Ask t-shirt. Is it possible that I can get a... Uh, I'll have a grass little thingy from you so I can put it with the T-shirt. Sure. Yeah, you bet. I will, uh... uh, I'm really trying to... I'm going to be wearing one, framing one, and putting the uh, stickers on them, whatever I can get hands on that people won't kill me for. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because I've been following you since you were on the other show. Yeah. Yeah, you... uh, and keep up the show. Thanks a lot. And uh, you guys have been doing a great show. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. I will, uh, I'll find something to sign and I will absolutely send it out to you. Uh, 855-450 notes, 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Frank writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. Thank you so much for your show and all you do for the open source and Linux community. For the past couple of years, I've been running PFSense on an old computer. I have a TP-Link managed switch that has two VLANs on it, one for my IoT electronics and one for my personal stuff. Although I don't quite understand all of the options and PFSense has to offer, I'm learning as I go, which brings me to my question. My current ISP is less than stellar, around 8 megabytes up and, or excuse me, 8 megabytes down and 0.7 up. Recently, one of the wireless providers has begun offering 5G home internet solutions in my area here in rural Arkansas. The current advertised price is actually cheaper than my current ISP offerings. When helping my brother-in-law set up this service, he began to get 100 megabytes down and around 20 up. This was quite an improvement for his situation, and it would be for mine as well. Everything sounds amazing, and I've been waiting to see how his service has been over the last month, which continues to be great. I have been preparing for my eventual switch to the service. That's when I found a problem. I'm hoping that you can help me understand and potentially solve this problem. Currently, I have my ISP's modem in bridge mode, and I've been letting PFSense handle everything else. But the provider I would like to switch to doesn't allow their 5G modem router combo to be placed in bridge mode. In fact, what I found out is that the modem router combo is lacking in features and is very basic. I have a few posts on people using PFSense, but having to deal with a double NAT situation. Is a double NAT something that causes a lot of issues? Is this something that can be worked through? Where can I go to learn and understand how to deal with a double NAT? Should this be a deal breaker? I really like my PFSense setup, but I would also like faster internet. My choices are very limited. Again, thanks for the awesome notes. Keep up all the great work. Also, love having Steve's insight on the show as well. Frank from Arkansas. So, Steve, I, I guess I would start by saying that uh, the the explanation of a double NAT is is pretty straightforward. It, we use NAT to allow multiple devices to share an IP address. And so if you have, let's say, five devices on the inside of your network and they need to be able to access the Internet and the Internet in turn needs to be able to return data to those five devices, we have to have a way to do that. And so you can see this working for yourself in person by going to IPChicken.com. If you go to IPChicken.com, you're going to see your public IP. And if you scroll down under advanced, you're going to see remote port and it's going to give you the randomly generated port 
um, that that tab is using. Now, if you open up a new tab and go to IP chicken again, you're going to see that that port number changes. And so in my case, the first remote port I got assigned was 63862. The second one I got assigned was 22730. So when data comes back to my router on, on port 22730, it's going to send it to my second Firefox tab. When data comes in on 63862, it's going to send it to my first Firefox tab. And that's how I'm able to have two uh, tabs operating on one public IP address, and the router is able to do that. Where you're going to run into problems is with things like UPnP, it's going to just catastrophically break because it relies on the ability to negotiate those to negotiate through uh, the firewall. And so when you don't have the ability to for the firewall to say, hey, I'm going to hand this off, there are certain functionalities that, you know, chat function and, and voice functionality uh, that will break with it. Steve, what kind of things have you seen uh, in a double net scenario? So usually it doesn't impact people too, too much. It definitely works with, uh, it does hurt the UPnP, but I tend to disable that anyways, because I don't like the idea of something knocking on my firewall and punching a hole without me knowing it. Um, so if you're not sharing anything out from the inside, like you're not going to try and connect back home, it's not that big of a deal. Having said that, sometimes you can actually work with the ISPs um, if you express, for example, that your work requires you to have a certain setup. They might allow you to put the SIM card directly into a PFSense box because PFSense does support that if you have the right gear. Um, so some places will actually will work with you and other places like now we don't care. So um, it's always worth a shot to, to kind of, let's say, slightly firmly press on them and say, hey, you know, I have a work requirement to um, put in certain gear and this, you know, what can we do to kind of work through this together? And they may actually come up with a, a solution that they wouldn't do for just anyone off the street. So I'll piggyback off that a little bit. Um, you could uh, first. OK, so first and foremost, make absolutely sure that there isn't a way that maybe you've perhaps missed to put that that box into some sort of a bridge mode. But if there isn't, if it's any one of the major carriers, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, um, typically they will work with a company called Cradlepoint and Cradlepoint basically makes an LTE modem so you take the sim card and just tell them hey I, you know I want your service okay thanks thanks for your little modem router modem combo and you take that uh device and you take the sim card out and purchase a Cradlepoint and put the sim card into the Cradlepoint the Cradlepoint then becomes the LTE modem which you can then connect in to your PFSense box and you're able to use it that way. Uh, Chris Fisher actually has a device and I can't think of the name. I'll see if I can get the, the make and model and throw it in the show notes, but he actually has a device that allows you to take a number of different uh, carriers. So you can have Verizon and AT&T and bring them both in and then hand it off to a regular router. And the way that that device works is it actually uses a VPN. So each WAN connection VPNs out and you install the software on like a digital ocean droplet that becomes your public IP and uh, then you're able to access the internet that way. Uh, Steve thoughts on carrier grade NAT and how that works. So a lot of times the, the big uh, 
wireless carriers will be doing NATing inside of their network anyways. So irrespective of what they what you can do with your modem, you might end up in a triple NAT situation where the carrier is NATing and you can't see that. And then they give you a modem and the modem NATs. And then if you put something behind the modem, like a PFSense and that NATs, you could end up in this really big mess. So wireless carriers, especially in North America, are really notorious for doing some sort of nodding even before it gets to your device. The the short answer is uh, you, for, Frank, for general day-to-day browsing the internet, checking your email, streaming Netflix, that kind of stuff, you're not probably going to notice any problems. Uh, one thing that you could do is set up something like private internet access and then always connect out from your router out to that. Uh, that would give your PFSense a direct connection to the world um, because it would essentially be tunneled. And so you could bypass that problem a, a couple of different ways. But so, but if you find yourself against, hey, I can have slow internet or double or tr- even triple natted internet, you might try the triple natted internet and see where that gets you. And then if you run into problems, you know, don't sign a contract and give it a shot and see if it works for you. But day-to-day browsing, I don't think you'll find a problem. Jonathan writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'm personally a fan and supporter of Bitwarden. I was talking with my coworkers. I currently self-host my Bitwarden service on my local LAN, and then I VPN in when I'm remote. I have a strong long master password along with my Yubico key, so I think I'm pretty safe with all of my online account passwords. But my coworker told me that Firefox has access to all of my data because I'm using their Firefox add-in. I know add-ins are and can be a security hole, but this doesn't sound right to me. If I copy and paste my password via the app image, that's a bigger security issue with human errors, URL phishing, etc. But my coworker told me I need to use KeePass 2 and type my password, not use the copy and paste function. I agree that the best password manager is in your own mind, but I obviously can't remember 100 plus accounts and passwords that I use daily. I think Firefox add-in with an open source tool is better than a typo or a phishing issue. Am I wrong? I am. I I do keep my super security on my desktop in KeePass 2, but I like Bitwarden for daily normal accounts. So I'll start here with my disclaimer. I'm not a security expert. I don't play one on TV, and I have no firsthand knowledge of how the Bitwarden add-on in Firefox work. With that disclaimer out of the way, I would tell you that that doesn't pass the smell test. Um, first of all, I would, I find it hard to believe that Bitwarden would release an officially supported add-on for Firefox that gives the browser direct access to all of that data. Second of all, if you'll notice, if you ever get signed out of Bitwarden, uh, you have to sign in through the extension before the extension can do all of the autofill and all of the autofill options and configuration are all are all configured from within the add-on itself, not in Firefox. So my strong suspicion is that the Bitwarden add-on is doing all of the security stuff. Now, when you go to fill out a password, it's entirely possible, in fact, almost certain, that Bitwarden is handing the username and password through Firefox, but that's happening anyway if you're entering it inside of inside of the inside of a field that's that's populating in Firefox. You have to trust the browser to an extent, uh, at least until you can get to that HTTPS jacket that's going to encrypt the information. Steve, what are your thoughts? Yeah, to keep this kind of tight, I think you're right about the, it doesn't pass the sniff test. So 
I do play a bit of a security person in my day job. Uh, it doesn't involve browsers and these things are complex, but I would say that from just a logical standpoint, if you trust Bitwarden, then you are also trusting that they're going to make their extension in in a specific way. So you can make extensions whereby nothing else in Firefox can have access to it. And, and we can see that, for example, in the Facebook um, sandboxing that they do, right? They're, they're, the technology exists inside the browser. So if you trust Bitwarden, then it's reasonable to trust their add-on. Not to mention that because it's particularly open source, I have to imagine that someone somewhere would have screamed from the heavens and we would have heard about it if there was some egregious security concerns with that. Having said all that, of course, the most secure way is to have a device where you're pass it's completely offline and it's a screen beside you and you type that password in. But as Noah said, you're still typing that into the browser. So the browser is still handling that information anyways. You have to have a level of trust somewhere. What are you what is your threat vector? That's what you're trying to trying to figure out. Is your threat vector I am like scared for my life and someone is targeting me? Or is it I don't want to be the low-hanging fruit in you know a mass gathering of credentials? Either case will dictate which one you should follow. I suspect that you're like me and saying, you know what, a, a password manager is better than none and I don't want to be the low-hanging fruit and that's what I'm going for. If I was scared for my life, you better believe that I'm using a lot more rigor around my processes. That's that's great, Steve. I, I, I agree with all that. Um, I have a request on my own show if I'm allowed to do that. So I am looking for a device that can help me uh, play the drums, essentially. I have drum charts. So if you're not, a brief recap on, on, on a little bit of music. Instead of writing out actual chords that you would follow, um, another way to notate music is with numbers. And so you can write out uh, one number per uh, measure of music. And if the measures come at you twice as fast, you can write an underline on them. If they come at you four times as fast, you put two underlines, so on and so forth. And so I've designed a bunch of these charts known as the Nashville number system uh, so that I don't have to try to remember what to play in a song. I can just read the chart and know exactly what I'm playing. I need three things to be able to play a song on the drums. I have to be able to know uh, what the stylistic nuances are. I have to know where the stops are and if those stops are sustained or held. And so that national number system allows me to document all three aspects of, of any song perfectly uh, all at once. The issue that I've run into is right now I have all these charts printed on eight and a half by 11 paper, which I want to be able to do because sometimes I don't have power or I'm playing an acoustic set where I just have to have everything on paper. But I'm looking for a device that will allow me to display these charts. So the device needs to be able to display color because their various different markings are color coded. I'm willing to use a commercial tablet, so I'm fine with an Android or iOS device. But it has to be some sort of standard screen resolution because I don't want to have to recreate these charts every time I upgrade a device. And so uh, I'm currently making these charts inside of Inkscape, and I would like to be able to uh, design around one particular screen resolution. As I've begun to dig into this project, though, what I found is there's not really a standard of screen resolution anywhere. 
And it also seems like every time a tablet manufacturer iterates on their tablet, they change the screen resolution. And so if I dig into a particular device, like I said, the Samsung Tab S7, it's the best Samsung tablet out there, and I'm just going to buy like three of them, and that's just going to be my charting device, uh, then my concern would be I need some device that I can invest in and say, well, this is just the device I've gone with. But I'm always going to get software updates. And so then it has to support something like Lineage OS. So if anybody out there has a thought on what device I could use for these drum charts, I would be forever appreciated. Again, you can write in your ideas at live at asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is Windows FX. So this is the Linux distribution targeted at Windows users. Now, I have to be honest with you. This is one of those things that I've always kind of thought about if I were to set up a kiosk at a mall and said, hey, here's the new version of Windows. What do you think? This is the kind of distro that you would use for that. So all operational features, the WX desktop uh, settings and tools, they include an open source voice assistant, which is an alternative to Cortana. They It has support for Microsoft Active Directory. It has support for OneDrive built into the file manager. Uh, it is in Ubuntu distribution with the KDE Plasma desktop, but it is themed and configured to look exactly like Windows 11. They even include a pre-install of MS Teams, uh, Haloa, which is the Cortana clone, Audacity, Microsoft Office, the online edition. They include PowerShell. They include OneDrive. They include Spotify. They include Visual Studio code. So this is going to be, if you were looking at Windows 11 and you had not seen Windows 11 before, this is something that is going to closely resemble and then function a lot like a Windows system. They also include Wine, so you should, in theory, be able to run all of your Windows executables. Now, I have one of the guys that works for us at Altispeed. He is working on a on a plan to combat uh, spammers, people who are calling and trying to trick people into giving up their information. So he's going to let them remote into what they think is a Windows box, and then he's going to have some fun with them. And so Windows FX is uh, uh, one of the tools that he's considering. So we'll give a plug for it. We'll have a link for it in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you're looking for a Windows clone or if you're the person in your life is coming from a Windows environment, uh, tell them that this is the new way to upgrade to Windows 11 and just see how far it gets you. Our gadget of the week is the open book. So as a society, we need open source devices for reading. And books are some of the most important documents in our culture. And yet the most popular widespread devices that we have, things like the Kobo and the Nook and the Kindle, and even to a lesser extent, the iPad, they're all closed source devices. And the operating systems are all closed source operating uh, systems. And so these are all closed platforms. And so the open book aims to be a simple device that anybody with a soldering iron can build for themselves. The open book is comprehensible and you should be able to look at it and you should be able to understand it, at least in the big picture, in the broad strokes, the 30,000 foot view. So how it works, uh, it's a reader with different needs. You can write code, you can add accessories, you can make the book work. And so they have a particular vision on how they want this to work. Now, back in January 2020, the open book was named the winner of Hackaday's Take Flight with Feather Contest, which means that at some point in the future, Adafruit will manufacture a 100 of the boards and they'll be available for purchase at DigiKey. They've also made some really great strides with software support on the Arduino side. The open book IL 
0398 driver, has waveforms for 2-bit grayscale mode, and a quick mode for turning pages, as well as initial support for a partial refresh through the API, and they think that this is going to change. So there's a minimum viable ebook on the market that you can go purchase. All of the code is available in their repository. We'll have links for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It is the open book. In the news this week, GitLab is going public. So GitLab, the provider of the DevOps platform, announced today that it plans to commence the roadshow for its proposed initial public offering known as an IPO of its Class A common stock. GitLab has filed a registration statement on a Form S1 with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission in the offer of 10,400,000 shares in its Class A common stock to the public. So I guess my questions to you would be this. If you moved from GitHub, who when when it was owned by Microsoft, there was a fairly mass exodus when this happened. If you that was if you were one of those people, does the fact that GitLab is going public bother you in any way, shape, or form, or do you say to yourself, "Well, at the end of the day, if I really cared about it, I would just privately host, self-host the entire GitLab suite myself," which you can absolutely do. And so it really doesn't matter who owns GitLab. That's the whole great thing about it in the first place. But the other thing that I have to ask the question. Are we not a little disappointed that it seems to be the technological dream of the day? Instead of build a thing and serve people well, it seems to be build a thing, grow it to the point that you can sell it, and then build another thing. And is that not what we're doing? Steve, your thoughts on GitLab going public? Well, actually, I guess I should start with this. If Did you ever move to GitLab or was the network effect so high for you on GitHub that you never left GitHub? Um, so that's a complicated question. I guess I'd say I put my primary stuff in GitLab and then I mirrored it to GitHub. So both. Um, okay. No, that makes sense. Does the fact that they're going public, does that bother you in any way, shape or form? Or is it just, meh? no, I think that this is, um, it's going to be a sad day. I think what's going to happen is someone's going to eat them up and, that that will be the end of this. And I know that it was an open source project, but it's so massive that um, forking it, unless it gets handed off to an, a foundation that's got some decent resources behind it, I think forking it in this case isn't the answer because it's so huge. Um, I don't necessarily think it's all doom and gloom, but having worked for both private companies and then public companies, I know that things such as R&D and other other type activities which are really important often get deprioritized in public companies because that just doesn't bring in value from the shareholders. So I guess the jury's out, but I I tend to lean on this is not really a good thing. Yeah, that's kind of where I come down to it too. Again, I get kind of disappointed because, you know, I knew a lot of people that worked at GitLab. I knew somebody who worked at GitLab when they first started up and has been with them for a long time. And it was fun to watch that company's agility, how fast they were able to respond to the market, how fast they were able to meet the needs of their customers and how well they did that. And so it is kind of disappointing. It is kind of disappointing to me, but I wish them all the best. And at the end of the day, I guess, I mean, they're going to do what's in their best financial interest. And so if that means going public and selling a bunch of stock, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Google offers $1 million to harden 
free and open source software. So Google is backing a new project from the Linux Foundation to the tune of $1 million, and it aims to bolster the security of critical open source projects. So it's dubbed the Secure Open Source, or SOS, and the pilot program is run by the Linux Foundation. It financially rewards developers for enhancing the security of critical open source projects. So the rewards are going to range from $10,000 or more for hardening software in a way that prevents major bugs to $505 for quote-unquote small improvements that have merit, according to the Google blog post. Rewards of between $5,000 and $10,000 are available for moderately complex improvements that offer compelling security benefits, while rewards of $1,000 to $5,000 are for solutions that display modest complexity. And impact. And so essentially what they're doing is they're starting with a $1 million investment and they plan to expand the scope of the program based on the community feedback. Uh, but this is in response to a number of the supply chain attacks that have come after the Kremlin backed cyber attack on the U.S. government agencies and tech firms that are now poised to give updates from enterprise software firms such as SolarWinds. And I, I hear that and I immediately begin to resonate this with it for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is it occurs to me that if we have public funding, then it seems reasonable to demand that that code is free and open source. If I pay for the code, I should have access to it. And secondly, it seems like this is a reasonable response to a problem with a reasonable chance to, of success. If you sit down and say to yourself, self, we have the SolarWinds project, it's deployed at all these places, and there was a massive security concern and we didn't catch it would it does it stand to reason then that if that code was audited and it was open source and more people had available to it had it had the available had the ability to evaluate it would we perhaps have caught that error now in the case of the solar winds attack specifically you know when you're compromising a signing key kind of all bets are off but the general idea of getting more eyes on the code is something that I agree with in principle. Quote, the SOS program is part of a broader effort to address the growing truth. The world relies on open source software, but widespread support and financial contributions are necessary to keep that software safe and secure. We envision the SOS program to be the starting point of future efforts that will hopefully bring together other large organizations and turn it into a sustainable long-term initiative under the open SSF. Now, I and Steve, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this as well as well. But I see this and I immediately say to myself, this is a good direction for us to go. And particularly after things like Heartbleed, where we had such a critical error in such a widely used piece of software that should have been caught. And if there was money and there were eyes and there was a reward and there was an incentive to pay attention to those kind of problems, we likely would have caught it. That likely wouldn't have happened. And as I, I agree with the concept of moving more towards open source, particularly in, in government and publicly funded things. So this seems like a reasonable response, but I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts. I think the reward is a really good idea. I think that when people are looking at, hey, I found a bug or an exploit, what do I do with it? There's, there are several choices they have. One is I release it out in the wild with a, a proof of concept for, let's say, internet points. I release a research paper and I try to do the right thing-ish because this boosts my career. And then there's the, I could probably turn this into for profit somewhere. And so this kind of gives a fourth option of like, hey, you don't have to uh, sell this on the dark web in order to to benefit from from 
uh, sleuthing out a problem. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I thank you to Google for putting the money out there. I appreciate it. I wish your project all the best of luck, and I hope this really does turn things around. And I can, I hope that open source continues to grow both in the the public realm as well as private companies continuing to move their software towards open source because I think it ultimately puts them in a better hands. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. A couple of announcements. You can follow that guy. He's at Linux Ovens on Twitter. You can follow me. I'm at Colonel Linux. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. We'll keep you up to date with the latest. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us interactive live in our Jitsi room. You can join that at geeklab.ninja. Questions bot is available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We release all the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow. We'll see you back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. <laughs>